1: Welcome back as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour. It is a delight to welcome back to the show Dr. Stanley Kurtz. He, among other things, is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. If anything interesting is being done in education, you can rest assured it's usually because Stanley Kurtz has initiated it and is doing it. And he's got some great ideas and a brand new piece, a long piece he has uh, over at National Review, Arizona's Camp disaster can be stopped. Stanley, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Thanks for coming on.
2: Seth, thanks so much for having me.
1: Good to be in touch. You know, it's funny. Um, we have talked a few times about your um, education work uh, and education pieces. A lot of them tend to have to do with Arizona. You've had us uh, in your sights as a possible as a possible answer to a lot of the national solutions, but in today's um, piece, you you have some great advice for our, our, our next governor. Of course, you do, and other governors. I want you to walk us through that in a moment, but also. The depredation that one of our three major state universities is engaging in, uh, Northern Arizona University, usually tends to fly a little bit under the radar here in Phoenix because it's in, you know, one of the smaller of our three big cities. But, man, they are wrecking some damage on America's youth, aren't they?
2: They are, Seth, and they're bragging about it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, Northern Arizona University has gone woke in a way that is extreme, even for higher education. Very, very difficult to do that, but uh, the sort of centerpiece of what they've done, uh, which is really only the tip of the iceberg, but the, but the flag- flagship outrage here is the adoption of uh, four required courses in diversity for graduation. And each of those courses has to be taught from the perspective of critical theory. Critical theory, of course, is the granddaddy of critical race theory, critical legal theory, and a whole series of other critical theories. It's really just a, um, just a way of saying that this is a form of neo-Marxism, that this is radical leftism descended from Karl Marx himself, but instead of applied to economics, applied to things like race and law and every other category. So we've got a four-part requirement, a four-course requirement for graduation in Marxist theory, essentially, uh, which again, they're bragging about because um, even even most universities, however extreme they are, don't don't think to go
1: that far, right? My concern, of course, is that the next university that looks at this, whether it's one here in Arizona or one in wherever Virginia, Washington, California, they're going to think, "Oh, well, we can do better than NAU." Let's require five. I like, I like how you, uh, and that is the trend, by the way. I, I like the phrase. I don't know if you created it. You probably did. They want to neo pretty much everything. I'm going to give you that phrase and tm it, <laughs> trademark it. That's great. Neo-Marxitize pretty much everything. What people don't understand, though, Stanley, and you do such a great job of explaining this. What people don't understand is the role that politicians, political leaders have in this. This is not an ivory tower, NAU, any more than ASU or U of A. This is not an ivory tower that is impermeable to political considerations. Walk us down this path, please.
2: Well, that's right, Seth. The amazing thing about this outrageous new requirement, a four-part requirement in critical theory, is that it has actually been ratified and approved by the regents of the state of Arizona, commonly called Arizona Board of Regents, or ABOR for short. And those regents are appointed by the governor, which in this case is a Republican governor. Who opposes critical race theory. So how does it happen that a board of regents appointed by a Republican governor would approve uh, an extreme bit of neo-Marxism of, of this sort? And it turns out that there is nothing unusual about this. Right. And in fact, in state after state, uh, Republican governors appoint regents Sometimes it's a Republican legislature, and those regents essentially fold and just rubber stamp whatever these leftist universities present them with. And so this was definitely a focus of my piece today. Uh-huh. It is an underlying problem. On the one hand, it's depressing and outrageous. On the other hand, there is real hope here, because the truth is regents don't have to approve these things. And if people are alerted to the problem, we can exercise pressure on the regents, on the politicians who appoint them and make a fundamental change in our universities. And I don't think people realize that.
1: I don't think so either. And what's unfortunate, some of us, I mean, you grew up with this. I kind of grew up with this, knowing some of these things just because of our interest in higher education. Uh, Stanley, uh, I remember years ago, uh, my old teacher was going through this in the 60s with the black power movement at a private university at Claremont, uh, Harry Jaffa. And he was talking about the Board of Regents at Claremont. You know, they're all Republican, Southern California, the 1960s. You know, these types, Stanley, right? They probably constituted most of Reagan's ultimate brain trust um, in in years subsequent. They were all approving these these, you know, black studies programs, things like that. That Harry Jaffa was challenging him. He said the, these people, they would talk tough as nails over brandy and cigars when they weren't at their um, board of trustees meetings. But it wasn't, he said, Churchill's uh, whiskey or cigars that they were obviously drinking and smoking because they kind of bow down to the academic elites, don't they? What is it about these corporate titans that get appointed to these positions, whether by governor or by uh, college, um, college boards themselves? These Republicans and conservatives get appointed, but then they kind of, what what, what, what what should we say, they go wobbly, they go soft, they go deferential to these uh, stuffy academics who they somehow think have more moral credibility than de- they do. It's a weird dynamic. It's a weird power dynamic, isn't it?
2: It is, Seth, and uh, I think there are several reasons for it. First of all... The truth is, governors tend to treat these positions as political patronage, which means that they appoint people who don't have a lot of knowledge about how academia actually works. Uh, They're often very successful businessmen, which is great and uh, indicates a lot of capabilities in many areas, but if you ask them to argue with an academic about an academic issue, they they get cold feet because they don't have the background. And many of them are very proud to take these positions. Uh, They like, frankly, they like to hand out football tickets to their friends. (laughs) They like the prestige of the position. Uh, They don't want to be at odds with um, the the university. Oftentimes, they're graduates of the university, and they're, they're proud. And they want this to be a kind of a trophy-like uh, capstone on their career, and uh, they don't have independent staff. The staff is provided by the university. Uh, they're not full time at the position, so they, you know, they don't have um, the ability to go toe to toe with uh, professional administrators and their staff. Uh, and they're afraid of embarrassing themselves, and they really just don't want to fight, is what it comes down to. And so again and again they fold. If the public were to pay attention and hold them responsible and make them realize that when they approve a radical proposal like that, instead of getting uh, prestige and pride and reward, they're going to get anger from their friends, then then they would change.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. So we now um, have the opportunity to encourage governors to look at this more seriously and hold them accountable on this. Um, and, and there's a template here. Uh, you and I were off air kind of uh, marveling. At one of the great lessons, uh, Governor Ronald Reagan taught as almost, I think, his first act as governor in 1967. And the, um, the, uh, the rewards, the, uh, the receipts and the dividends that that paid off, not enough Republicans took that lesson. I have to take a quick commercial break, Stanley, but can we talk a little bit about that, what Ronald Reagan did in 1967 when we come back as maybe a lesson for future wannabe Ronald Reagans? You bet. I appreciate that, Stanley. As we head to break, let me put in a word for my good friends at Y-Refi. If you're looking for a really remarkable investment opportunity, check them out. They're offering a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a collateralized, secure portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm. They're investors who do really well by doing good for others, and you can be a part of that, too. Just check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, and ref dot investyrefi.com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087, 316 3087 Stanley Kurtz will be right back with us, and one other thing after you read this piece of his at National Review, do yourself a favor and read his latest book, The Lost History of Western Civilization. You can get it online. It's free Please read it. It explains the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show portions of which are brought to you by good folks at Balance of Nature. They are good folks who make a great product. I take it every single day. Boosts my energy, boosts my health, boosts my immunity. Pure, potent plant power. Balance of Nature. You take it once a day and you get a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables Favorite product I've ever taken. It's kept me well since I've been taking it. Haven't gotten sick since. Best products. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. There's nothing like it. 100% natural. Not 99 and 44, 100%. 100% all natural. Just fruits and veggies. Nothing added. Balanceofnature.com. Discount code balance. Stanley Kurtz is our guest. He's a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, has a very important piece up at National Review. Arizona's campus disaster can be stopped, which really means the country's campus disasters can be stopped. Right, Stanley?
2: Absolutely. This is a national problem. Arizona now, sadly, is leading the way, but it really is a national problem, and Arizona can help to lead the national solution.
1: We, we have done it before. We can do it again. California's done it before and can do it again. I told you earlier and you laughed and um, you laughed because of, 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 our, of our mutual uh, agreement with the point. My favorite headline from all of 1967 was a San Francisco Chronicle headline. You see Regents fire Kerr. Big victory for Reagan. Can you tell the audience just a little bit about what that was about? Because it's what your essay is about.
2: Ronald Reagan uh, ran his first big political campaign uh, to be governor of California, essentially against the madness at UC Berkeley. This was the beginning of the 60s, and the student rad- radicals sort of going crazy and occupying um, buildings and whatnot. People talk about the free speech movement, but the truth is at the time... These students, <laughs> the only free speech they were in favor of was their own. Right. <laughs> uh, they were very willing to shut down the speech of others. And, of course, that became predictive of what's happened with the left since then. And uh, there was, you know, there, there was um, rioting and takeovers, and Reagan ran against it in no uncertain terms. And uh, it made him nationally famous. Of course, he was known for his uh, speech on behalf of Goldwater, earlier on but this really boosted his reputation and it's incredible to me that republicans in the decades since then have not followed suit reagan uh, as governor was an ex-officio member of the uh, regents of california he used to go to the board meetings himself yeah yeah then he'd hold a news conference and berate them and you know before in the days before he'd appointed them all and uh But I'll tell you, there's another model here Mm -hmm. uh, that I'll mention because it it relates to uh, what I wrote today. That's the Grover-Norquist model. Okay. 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 You probably didn't see that coming. No, but I know and I
1: like Grover. Tell me what he did.
2: Well, he didn't do anything about higher education. Grover-Norquist is the fellow who went around having politicians, Republican politicians, sign a pledge. A pledge yeah. not to raise taxes. That's right. That's right. And the so ATR what,
1: tax pledge. That's right. Keep going. And so
2: right. I think we need to adopt a pledge strategy. We need to go to Republican candidates for governor, even during the primaries or after, and say, will you pledge only to appoint regents who will follow this and that um, plank, so to speak. Will mm-hmm. you pledge to back this kind of legislation, which will help to fix higher ed? And if we do that, then I think we can sort of kick the regents and turn them into a force for good.
1: One of the, thank you for that idea, Stanley. It's a great one. One, one of the challenges here. I mean, there are some. Uh, we talked about how uh, board members often uh, go native, if you will, or cower before you know academic uh, credentials that they feel maybe. There's, they, they get this kind of Stockholm syndrome when they walk into these board meetings where they, they maybe think they're not quite right and the professors, because they're professors and doctors and PhDs, that they're smarter than they are. And they're usually not, but they get cowered into those into those feelings and positions. But there's also another thing going on, too, which is. You, you of course, remember the old Solomon Amendment, right, that uh, allowed for the Department of Defense to withhold money from colleges and universities if they banned ROTC recruitment. You probably taught me about it 25 years ago, to be honest with you. Uh, I probably first heard about it from you. A bunch of us were encouraging a very hard-as-nails Secretary of Defense to exercise it. And you know what this very hardened Secretary of Defense said? Go up against Harvard? Are you kidding me? There is that, too, isn't there, Stanley? There is this sentiment where even the head of the Department of Defense fears Harvard. There's something weird there, isn't there?
2: Well, that's right. And you also find it's common that, um, say, Republican representatives in Congress or in the states will rail against higher ed, but they'll be very protective of the university in their district. Yeah,
1: that's right. Or
2: in their state. And also... Education committees in state legislatures and in Congress tend to actually to have the most moderate, establishment-oriented, and kind of pro-give money to pro-education, meaning pro-give them money and don't don't ruffle their feathers. Right. So you get the the rhino, so-called, you know. In, uh, the education committee is, is where they go. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are usually some culture war bomb throwers on the education committee, too, but they're often outnumbered uh, by the establishment types. And so there's a real problem here. And the way to solve it, again, following Grover Norquist, is it's kind of activate the voter base uh, to pay attention during elections and after, but especially during elections. To uh, what commitments are made. And so, in my piece, I suggested various steps that uh, Carrie Lake, for example, could pledge mm-hmm. to fulfill right now during this campaign. And if she did, I think it would help her campaign. And uh, I think it could establish a model for um, candidates across the country and governors across the country that would break out of this rut we're in where. Uh, Regents are afraid to go up against the universities that they supposedly oversee.
1: I agree with you. I mean, I happen to think that, um, you know, we have convinced ourselves for too many years That what kids are getting in college won't have real world, you know, kids would come home from college break spouting off Marxist theories. And we always said, oh, who cares? Once they start getting into the real world, they'll normalize. And and we were wrong about that. The lab leak that was far more toxic than what came out of Wuhan is what came out of the ivory towers here in America and spread into our professional class and into our culture. Right. I mean, this is how you stop it.
2: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Right. And it really has become, and this is not a new idea anymore, but uh, these uh, woke beliefs really have become a kind of new religion. These students don't have traditional religion, and they cling on to this for that reason. I think that's why it doesn't matter uh, that they go out and work and start paying taxes. Uh, This has become their religion, and people need religion.
1: That's right. Stanley Kurtz, you're the best. God bless you, sir, and Godspeed to you. We'll talk soon.
2: Great talking, Seth.
1: Thank you. Portions of this show are brought to you by the good people at Cool Touch Air Conditioning, Heating, and Plumbing. They are the best. If you have air conditioning problems or plumbing problems, give them a call at 623 748 4942. That's 623 748 4942. Or visit them online at cooltouch.us. You won't get better service, you won't get better customer service. I love these people at Cool Touch. If you need them, you will too. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It is a delight. It is a privilege. It is an honor to welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Bertha Madras. I could uh, give you her CV. It would take the entire hour, but this is one of the national, internationally recognized experts on uh, drug use, drug abuse. She is a professor of psychobiology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Bertha Madras, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Thanks for being with us.
3: Thank
1: you. I'm delighted to be back. I um I just wish we could call you when there was better news. You know, there are some experts uh, that are uh, around. Uh, well, really, that we have to call only when there's bad news. We have some bad news. At least I think it's bad news. I would love your take on it. The um, new monitoring, the future survey comes out, and the headline is marijuana and hallucinogen use among young adults reached an all-time high in 20. Twenty-one. I I don't know where to start with this. Let me let me throw a propo- uh, a, a, uh, a proposal out to you, and you tell me what you think, Doctor. You're the expert. C.S. Lewis put it that we make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. I would submit we normalize, destigmatize, and commercialize drug use, and expect sobriety and mental health. Am I far off here?
3: Well, I don't think we expect sobriety any longer. I think, in fact, we've normalized it to a point where it's become cool it's become normative in order to you know get rid of uh, problems that you have internalized problems and i think that our society is moving in the most dreadfully dangerous direction with regard to drugs were you
1: surprised by these survey results doctor did you kind of think this was the road we were
3: on i think it was the road we were on for two reasons first of all Once you medicalize a drug that is psychoactive, that you can intoxicate or hallucinate you, Uh um, you've got a problem because people think it's safe. Once it falls into that category, people think it's safe. After all, it's being used as a medicine. So with marijuana, it doesn't surprise me at all. It's been normalized and medicalized, so people think it's fine. Now, the same pathway, the same strategy is being used. With hallucinogens, there are a few clinical trials showing that they may help in depression. Those trials have a lot of weaknesses in them. They have to be addressed. The data and the the research is still very far from having approval by the FDA, and yet it's becoming mainstream to believe that hallucinogens are, in fact, medicines. Once you medicalize, people say, well, it's got to be safe. And therefore, let's try it. It's an interesting because-
1: use of the word medicalized, too. I mean, there's, these, there's a documentary that's going around on the use of what I would call um, psychedelic mushrooms uh, and, yes. and, and seeing the health. We'll return to marijuana in a moment. But just on that point, we did in Oregon with mushrooms, what we've been doing around the country with marijuana. You say medicalized. I, I want people to understand medicalized means by dint of the vote of 18 year olds. That's how we're doing it, by putting these quote-unquote medicines to not FDA subjection, but 18-year-old voters.
3: Exactly. That's the problem. And without, without really strong, deep information, people are voting without knowing what they're doing You know, we have a country now that thinks marijuana is completely safe. They've been showered with messages that it's safe, and they are now being showered with messages that hallucinogens are not only safe, but they're in medicine. Right. We have massive problems. The other big problem that concerns me, and then we can talk about solutions, is that the people in which these use trends are going up, and they're going up in in very alarming ways, are 19- to 30-year-olds. What is the age at which people begin a family and start parenting? Right. That is the age. Or join the
1: military or start voting or entering the workforce or entering college, right? I mean, this is the critical age, right?
3: Critical age, and what uh, our research was, which was published in a very high-quality journal. This is a, a, a combination of the CDC, NIDA, and SAMHSA, three government institutions, and myself, and we excavated data showing that children of parents who use drugs—marijuana, alcohol, tobacco, other drugs—are much, much more likely to use them as well. There you are. There that you way. are. Influence yeah. in the home is enormous. Yeah. And if we have 42% of, of people, 19 to 30, using marijuana in the past year, which is what the data says, the likelihood of their children watching their parents use the drug is very high.
1: Dr. Madras, this was a short segment. Let me take a quick commercial break because I don't want to interview, interrupt any of your, your important thoughts here. Let me take a quick commercial sure. break and pick up on some of this on the other side. I'm Seth Liebsen. She is Professor Bertha Madras. She is a professor of psychobiology, Department of Psychiatry, Harvard Medical School. We'll be right back. I'm Seth Liebson. It is a delight to have with us Professor Bertha Madras from the Harvard Medical School. We're talking about the new statistics out from the um, National Institutes of Health. Marijuana and hallucinogen use among young adults reached an all-time high in 2021. That's the headline. We're breaking down some of the uh, reasons for that, and then we'll get to some of the uh, contemplated solutions In just a moment, Uh, Dr. Madras, before I do, uh, you have um, for years, been uh, talking against the conventional wisdom, or at least the interested wisdom that tries to detoxify, if you will, the dangers of marijuana. And a lot of people have experience with marijuana from their youth. What they may be unaware of is that it's an entirely different drug than it was in the 70s or even 80s. We're we're watching the Parkland High School uh, trial right now. Uh, We look at a lot of violence, actually, related to a drug that we were told was supposed to make people peaceful the shooting of gabby giffords here in tucson the pulse nightclub shooting aurora colorado uh, as i just mentioned the parkland shooting some of the mass shootings we've seen just this year marijuana involved in all of them Uh, doctor what of this greatly peaceful tranquil pacific drug
3: well first of all the myth that marijuana is just a green plant is risible Marijuana is no longer a green plant. Marijuana is now being bred at extremely high concentrations of THC, which is the compound in it that produces all the problems. At very high doses, there is no question that the risks are increased for psychosis, for all kinds of, of um, behavioral problems that you don't see in the 1960s marijuana, which is only about 3%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Typical marijuana now is being sold at around 20%. The dabs, the shatter, the concentrates are 60 to 90%. Some are almost pure. And the doses that people are getting are somewhere between ten and a hundred times higher than they used to get smoking, mm-hmm. you know the, the old weed, which was which was diluted with oregano and some other right,
1: herbs. right, right, right.
3: It's no longer the same, and what we're finding is that the addictive potential with high dose marijuana. The addictive potential is higher, the potential and risk for psychosis is higher. There is a risk for violence, especially in withdrawal. Yep. If a person is withdrawing, there is there's sleep disorders as a result of, of um, withdrawal. There are many, many other consequences that are kicking in with these very high potent forms of marijuana and people don't realize how dangerous the current product is
1: and and it's part and parcel of the larger problem we're facing with uh drug use too I think but you know let's talk for a moment about recapturing uh the ability to do something about this we have over various periods in our history been able to do things about this i remember looking at some data where we had a high watermark use of 70 in 1979, we were able to cut use in half by 93. The, the idea that we can't do anything about this is, is, is fallacious, right?
3: Well, the big mantra is it's a failed war on drugs. Okay. And I, the first question I ask is, what do you mean by failure? What do you mean by goals? You know, define what you mean by that. Because, for example, the United Nations Office on Drug and Crime showed that because of international conventions and regulations, opioid use that is recreational opioid use declined about eighty percent worldwide because of the clampdown on access to opioids for the whole century that until the the um the advent of, of prescription opioids being prescribed like candy, mm-hmm. so there is a possibility of reducing supply sufficiently to be able to clamp down on on access to the drugs. Mm-hmm. There is also prevention. If you look at smoking, for example. You bet. It is dropped. It has dropped dramatically. About half the people who used to smoke no longer smoke. In fact, it's even higher than that. Why? Because there was a concerted effort with the tobacco settlement to promote prevention. We don't have that kind of mass preventive ads and, and information for the public on any other drug except smoking now.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. I don't know why we have raised the white flag on prevention just when we were obtaining some of its great successes. But, I mean, it's across fields that prevention messaging works. We reduce smoking something like 50%. My gosh, forest fires. <laughs> we were you know, smoking yeah. the bear. We can prevent forest fires. Um, can we do this again? Can we put this genie back in the bottle or is it smashed?
3: The bottle? No, no, we can put the genie back in the bottle. So what we have to do, is oppose talking points that are very seductive. Good. Good. And and the seductive talking points are that the war on drugs has failed. No, it's the only thing that's failed is resolve. Right. Is a concerted effort. And number two is forget the mantra of the war on drugs. I always call this a defense of the human brain. Beautiful. And that is what we should be talking about, and that should be the construct and the structure for our prevention message.
1: I'm going to ask you, I have heard you do it before in a couple of minutes in our last segment, uh, not quite yet, but after the commercial, I'm going to ask you to give uh, give us that concluding message that I have heard you give. I think you know what I'm talking about,
3: the yes. beautiful yes. development
1: of the brain. So we'll we'll hold that for yes. just a second. But uh, do you worry, uh, Dr. Madras, about the fact that this is taking place almost under the radar in the sense of this? Uh, our population increased about a third uh, since the 1980s. Drug deaths have increased about 900 percent. And, you know, today's Arizona Republic we're a one state paper, today's Arizona Republic, nothing about the monitoring the future study. Do you worry that this is taking place under the radar and we're going to wake up one day and realize what that? You know what have we done so, to ourselves?
3: The, the, the same grace for this being under the radar are parents who have suffered tremendously no. from the consequences. No. Anyone who says that, there, that drug use is a victimless activity is 100% wrong unless you were born an orphan, abandoned in the street at one, at one day of age, and you knew, made no social connectedness whatsoever that's the problem everybody who has had a drug problem who has died of an overdose who is in uh, a, 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 in a state of addiction and has rejected their family everyone has Damage on the sidelines. We can call it collateral damage, but it's parents, it's spouses, it's children, everyone suffers.
1: It's one of those talking points we must do away with. It is not a victimless drug, it is not a victimless crime, it is not a victimless habit. In fact, as uh, Joe Califano used to say, these drugs aren't dangerous because they're illegal. They're illegal because they're actually dangerous. When we come back from this break, Dr. Bertha Madras is going to give a concluding thought. Folks, I'm guaranteeing you, you won't want to miss it. We'll be right back. I want to thank Dr. Bertha K. Madras for being with us this half hour. She has um, been generous with her time as she has been generous with her commitment to the cause of a more sober and more safe culture. Doctor, would you mind closing out this interview with the thought I have heard you express before about the developing (laughs) brain and the magic of all of that?
3: Yes, well... I always close by saying the brain is the repository of our humanity. It is from the brain and brain only that we develop the ability to write poetry, to speak, to create laws, to create rockets, iPhones, every single thing that we have done that advances our civilization, advances public health, new antibiotics, new uh, treatments for cancer, all of this comes from the brain and from the brain only. And we are not waging a war against drugs. Above all, we are waging a defense of the developing brain, the most precious part of our humanity.
1: Bless you for that, Bertha Madras. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything you do. If I could clone you, I would. If I could clone <laughs> you, we'd solve this problem better. But it's so good to be in touch with you, and it's so good to have your voice and your thoughts thank on God. this. You and bet a bet.
3: shout out to McLean Hospital you from bet. where I'm based. You bet. I bet.
1: I should give a, a nice word to McLean Hospital here, where you are the director of laboratory of uh, in the laboratory of addiction neurobiology, and they helped coordinate this as well. Absolutely, Dr. Madras. Thank, thank, you. thank you for that mention Bye-bye. as well. God bless you and Godspeed. I'm Seth Leibson. Don't go away. We will be right back. Three-star general Michael J.
0: Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn.